From Boise, Idaho, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at the intersection of education policy and education politics. I'm your host, Clark Corbin. My normal co-host and partner in crime, Kevin Richard, is off this week and on vacation, so we've got a little bit of a special episode. In a few minutes, I'm going to have James Dawson from Boise State Public Radio uh, join the podcast to talk a little bit about the state's response to the coronavirus pandemic and also a little bit more about what he noticed last week covering the oral arguments in the Idaho Supreme Court case of Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ybarra versus the State Board of Education and the legislature. Really excited for that conversation with my friend James. We'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But I want to go through the headlines this week to get you started Um, A lot going on over at Idaho Education News. The best place to catch up is the homepage, which is www.idahoednews.org. But I have three stories that the staff worked on this week that I want to highlight. The first is this ongoing situation in Middleton, in the Middleton School District in western Idaho. On Thursday, the Middleton School District released former Superintendent Sharon Reberry's letter of resignation. Uh, Superintendent Reberry resigned on or about June 2nd after less than a year on the job in Middleton, a district that um, has had a lot of issues over the last two years, gone through a number of superintendents and had uh, some controversies that have generated news. They have some disagreements among board members. And so on Thursday, the Middleton School District released Reberry's resignation letter to Idaho Education News after we made several requests under Idaho's open records law to obtain, to get that letter. And then on the same day that the school district released the letter, two Middleton trustees, two of their school board members, resigned. Um, and that was Trustee Briggs Miller and Trustee Marianne Blackwell. Our reporter Sammy Edge has a really good story looking at the resignation letter, looking at the situation in Middleton, and the resignation of the two school board members there. So if you want to get caught up on that, head over to the homepage, www.idahoednews.org. Our Eastern Idaho reporter, Devin Bodkin, also had an important story this week that has come to light. Uh, Devin has done a lot of digging over the last couple of weeks, and was able to confirm that the Marsh Valley School District has disciplined their superintendent, Marvin Hansen, following um, a district-funded investigation into a sexual harassment complaint that was made by a former district employee. Um, Devin got a copy of some of the findings from the district's investigation into the complaint, and then the superintendent, Marvin Hansen, Devin spoke with him just briefly, and then... Marvin posted some information on his personal Facebook page, but according to the summary of the investigation, Hansen's relationship with the former employee did not amount to sexual harassment under the district policy, but the investigation did conclude that a sexual relationship existed between the two. Uh, Trustees had concluded from the investigation that the superintendent was going to be also disciplined for misusing a district car and a district cell phone, and that was something that Again, Marvin Hansen said in his Facebook post. Obviously, it's a it's a sensitive story, and there's more details uh, at the homepage. But this was something Devin had worked on to bring to light um, this out, outside, I guess, of the inner circles in Marsh Valley. This investigation was not known to the public before this week. Before 
Devin started asking about it and before the superintendent posted on his Facebook page. And so it was a district-funded investigation. Uh, they did have an outside investigator come in. And if you want to find out a little bit more about the details and then the situation there, that's on the homepage. Devin had that story. One other news item I wanted to get to real quick was the Boise School District announced their draft of plans for reopening in the fall. Reopening in the fall is a huge topic in Idaho. We know parents in the Boise School District are hoping for a traditional return to school in the fall. We know Idaho Governor Brad Little is hoping for a traditional return in the fall. And so Boise has put its plans out there. Um, and it's interesting. They're going to accept public comment through Monday, just a couple more days till June 15th. But it goes every th over everything from visitors needing to schedule appointments before visiting a campus uh, to students using their own personal water bottles at school instead of drinking fountains. And there's kind of a breakdown between the elementary level, the middle level, and the high school level. And so Sammy had also worked on that story. If you want to find out a little bit about, at this point, what the draft plans look like, uh, and if you want to share your thoughts with the Boise School Board before Monday, um, they're going to take it up at a meeting later this month. And so several big stories, several stories that we're going to continue to follow. On Thursday, I was at Governor Little's press conference regarding the reopening plan, Stage 4. And I want to invite James Dawson from Boise State Public Radio uh, to join us. James has been following the state response as well. So we're going to get into a little bit about Thursday's press conference, a little bit about what it means uh, to go into Stage 4. And... James has done a really good job about documenting some of the disagreements or some of the differences and approaches uh, within the Republican Party when it comes to the state's response. And so that's a really interesting discussion. If you want to hold on uh, for just a second, I'll get James on the line. All right, joining us on the Extra Credit Podcast today is James Dawson, a reporter from Boise State Public Radio, who covers the Idaho legislature and state government in Idaho. James, thanks for joining the show today. Do you mind taking a couple of minutes and introducing yourself to our listeners? This is your first time on the Extra Credit Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Clark. Uh, so like you said, my name is James Dawson. I am the kind of state politics reporter at Boise State Public Radio. Um, I've been here for about, oh, it's coming up on three years now, actually, um, that I'm back in Idaho. Uh, grew up in Lewiston, went to U of I, um, and then once I graduated, I covered state government and politics in Delaware for um, several years. So uh, not necessarily new to legislative reporting, um, but just kind of catching up. This is my second full-time session at the Idaho Capitol. Um, and it's been great to report alongside Clark and Kevin and uh, all the other great reporters that we have down in the press room. Yeah, I really like the press room dynamics there. Um, that's a cool situation, and I have a lot of respect for a lot of le legislative reporters. One of the things that's fun, uh, Jimmy, is you and I sit together <laughs> next to yeah. the session, uh, next to each other during the session in the press office there and have for the last couple of years, and so we kind of work together closely, and that's sort of a release uh, for me as I have those long meetings every morning in house ed. Uh, I come back to the press room and look to blow off steam before I get to work, so Always appreciate that. And then we started something fun in the last year or so. We've been playing trivia together after work, and so we've enjoyed that. But I appreciate Pre-corona. Pre-corona. I haven't played, haven't played since uh, early March, I don't think. Uh, definitely pre-pandemic. But the pandemic is a good uh, place to start because I want to talk about what you've noticed 
with the state's overall response to the coronavirus. Obviously, talking about the reopening plan, it doesn't directly affect schools. We've covered uh, the situation for schools. What I want to focus on is just kind of what you've observed and noticed basically since that Friday, March 13th, uh, when the first cases were confirmed by Governor Little. What's jumped out at you at the, about the statewide response? And then I want to get into some of the politics uh, that we've seen, too, even within the Republican Party. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I, I think if you've been paying attention to the, the response at all, I mean, you might have seen that it's been criticized for being, you know, coming too late, being too restrictive, being too lax and pretty much everything that you can think of. Uh, there there's, doesn't seem to necessarily be a happy medium that will please all people, even though I guess we've seen um, a poll from the Idaho Association of Commerce and Industry showing that, I mean, an overwhelming amount of people have uh, supported how Governor Brad Little has kind of um, implemented his four-phase uh, reopening plan and overall handling of the coronavirus. Um, but I, I guess kind of dialing back the, the clock to uh, March 13th, obviously, uh, as you mentioned, that's when we got our first confirmed case of coronavirus in Idaho. Um, and then pretty there pretty quickly thereafter. I mean, we saw um, a handful of deaths, um, mostly in Blaine County, uh, just to kind of start things off. And that's when the stay-at-home order began in late March, um, which basically uh, restricted people opening their businesses, conducting business, uh, kind of going about their normal daily lives, really, um, up through April 30th, I believe it was. Um, and so the main enforcement mechanism uh, that Governor Brad Little seemed to kind of rely on was, was a whole lot of peer pressure and not much else. I mean, as far as I've seen, we've only um, had one misdemeanor citation for breaking the governor's order, and that was in Rathdrum um, up in North Idaho with uh, this woman and her husband who were hosting a what police say was a pretty big yard sale for multiple days. Uh, police say that they had um, warned her multiple times to shut things down, uh, that sales were going on even when the officers were talking to them, um, and apparently she, she just did not uh, decide to shut it down. Um, I, we also had the protest in Meridian. Um, I guess that was in April, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, time yeah. blurs together. Corona time does not equal real time. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you had the, the play date protest over there with, uh, Sarah Walton Brady, um, getting arrested. Ultimately she was, she was charged with trespassing, um, and not breaking the, the governor's order. Cause you could be in the park in Meridian, right. uh, but you could not be on the playground and, uh, video evidence from that day. I mean, just showed tons of families, tons of kids, uh, playing on the equipment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when she actually put her hands behind her back and told the cop to arrest her. Um, yeah, I think she said do it. <laughs> yeah, she, she did say do it. Um, and then immediately after, called the Idaho Freedom Foundation. Um, yeah. And then later that night, there was a protest um, out in front of Meridian City Hall. Plus, you had Ammon Bundy and, you know, a couple dozen other people show up at the police officer's house. Um, to You know, what, what they said was that uh, complete government overreach – um, there were some other officers there who prevented uh, the protesters from actually stepping onto the officer's property. 
Um, that was kind of a tense situation, uh, especially online. Um, and ultimately, the Idaho Freedom Foundation said, hey, that wasn't us. We didn't organize it. Uh, we do not support that, um, though they have supported other protests, um, including like a dodgeball protest yeah. in, in Boise. So, um, I mean, if, if, if we're getting into kind of like the political response, uh, you know, you, you saw like things that weren't surprising, right? You had representatives like Heather Scott and uh, Chad Christensen and others who are on the uh, pretty far white right wing of the Republican Party um, immediately come out and say like, you know, this this isn't constitutional. This isn't good. Do not enforce this stay at home order. It should be optional. Um, and that and that's kind of what we expected. Um, but then something surprising was that House Speaker Scott Bedke sent a letter to Governor Little um, you know, not too far into the stay-at-home order, uh, basically saying that Idahoans should have the freedom to open their businesses as they see fit and follow whatever hygiene protocol that they and their public health districts come up with, and that uh, Governor Little should relinquish the response effort to the local public health districts. Um, and in not so, uh, uh, you know, veiled words, I guess, uh, he also said that if you do not do this, then there will probably be repercussions during the next legislative session in January uh, where we're going to take a check or a look at checking your executive authority. Um, and those calls have just grown um, ever since that letter came out as well. Um, that to me has been really interesting. And I want to stay here for a minute and just talk about that. James, I think you were the first person to break. Uh, the story about that letter, and I, I thought that was interesting. And yeah, the the more we hear from the legislature, um, and then the more we look ahead to twenty twenty one, which is still a, a ways off, particularly in Corona time, as you mentioned. But I thought that that was interesting. But I think you were one of the first people, or maybe the first person, to report on the letter from Bedke. I was, yeah, and I I actually got that sent to me by a source. Um, it had been kind of circulated around among legislators, but um, <laughs> I don't even remember what day that was. Sorry, but no, it's okay. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It was it was fairly early on in the state's response, right? And and you're right. I mean, it's it's noteworthy because you have House Speaker Scott Bedke, who I mean, his voting record shows that he he's a fairly conservative guy, right? But he's also like the leader of this house that is trying to he's trying to keep together a coalition of lawmakers and if he signed on to this letter um seemingly he was getting pressured from even more moderate republicans right um like you, you seemingly don't want to send one of these letters uh unless you have a pretty sizable majority within the house if if you need to go vote on something like this right yeah it was interesting that was interesting and the dynamics between the governor and Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan were interesting. Obviously, one big caveat right up front in Idaho. It's not like a president and vice president situation where they campaign and run together. That's not what the situation was at all. But Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan had mentioned that she was completely blindsided by Governor Little's original stay-home order. And she went on to criticize it and to suggest that businesses need to be open. And then finally this week, the two of them appeared together on a telephone town hall meeting on Tuesday that I listened in on. 
But it was interesting because the governor had pushback from, it's not his own lieutenant governor, but Idaho's own lieutenant governor at the time that he was trying to implement the state's response. Uh, did you notice that? I mean, that stuck out to me a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And you, you had uh, Lieutenant Governor McGeehan send uh, Brad Little a, a couple letters, actually, in yeah. April, um, one of which was saying, like, you know, I really want us to open up late March, but I will support extending this through April 30th, I believe was the date. And then just a few days after that, uh, which was still before April 30th, by the way, uh, she sent another letter saying, like, no, all jobs are essential and we need to open up right now. And that seemed to be about the time when um, they seemingly stopped talking. Uh, you know, we actually had the governor on uh, Idaho Matters, which is our um, noon talk show, daily talk yeah. show on Boise State Public Radio. Uh, and uh, our host, Gemma Gaudet, asked him, you know, straight up, hey, when was the last time you guys talked? Uh, and he had said at that point it had been a couple weeks. Usually they have a, a weekly phone conversation, um, but that just hadn't been happening. Uh, so it, it went, that silence went on for at least three weeks, could have been longer, we're not sure, um, up until this uh, AARP town hall earlier this week. Um, and, and not to mention, aside from the letter, she publicly went out and demonstrated against it by uh, going with former congressman and now Idaho uh, Republican Party Chairman Raul Labrador um, up to Hardware Brewing in Kendrick uh, on May 1st, I guess it was. Um, they opened up in defiance of the governor's order. There was an ISP detective who went there that day. Um, you know, bars at that time um, before Governor Little sped up their reopening um, weren't supposed to open until phase four. Um, right. And, and so I, I don't know. They, he caught a lot of flack for that, I think, um, from both McGeehan and others who kind of wanted some kind of middle ground. We should say that Lieutenant Governor McGeehan also owns this. Uh, it's not a brew pub, but it's a it's a pub and grill in Idaho Falls called the Celt. Uh, which which does serve food and also serves drinks. Uh, and yeah. So uh, I, I guess she uh, and others made the case to the governor that, hey, like we should not as uh, part restaurant, part pub uh, be subject to the same rules as uh, just a straight up bar. Um, and we should be able to open along with restaurants, which open in phase two. Yeah, and I, I don't know exactly. The, the Celt is in Idaho Falls. I was actually there and covered its grand opening um, when Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan was still a member of the Idaho House and opened that bar uh, with her husband. And I used to live in Idaho Falls, and so I've been in there several times. I don't know for sure. I think it would have been treated as a restaurant because it does have a, a full menu. I think you can get a steak there or whatever. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it was handled in regards to the Celt, but the overall situation and the political pushback and dissent was noteworthy, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. And then speaking of stage four, I was just at the press conference Thursday at the State House. We are going to be moving to stage four this weekend on Saturday. Again, it doesn't really affect schools, but it does allow larger gatherings of more than 50 if social distancing, if physical distancing guidelines are followed. Uh, it allows sports, it allows nightclubs with diminished capacity. And the governor had said that he wanted to emphasize that we barely made it to stage four. We almost didn't make it. There was quite a bit of pushback from journalists at the press conference. 
about the numbers and about how they were counting it, about whether Idaho really did meet the criteria. There was a lot of concern about the rate of infection among healthcare workers and that metric in particular. Um, but the governor really put out a somber call for Idahoans saying, even though we're moving into stage four this weekend on Saturday the 13th, even though that means 100% of Idaho businesses will now be able to open if they want to, he said, still need to be wearing a mask or a face covering out in public, still need to be focusing on physical distance, still need to be focusing on hand washing and sanitation of commonly touched surfaces and stay home if you're sick. But um, I, I, I know I covered that one and you weren't out there Thursday, but it, the thing that struck me about yesterday's press conference was kind of a somber note. And then really for the first time, I saw the governor take a couple of minutes and call out people who have been ignoring the stay healthy orders and some of the suggestions on things you can do to help limit and stop the spread. So interesting press conference Thursday, setting the stage to move forward with the reopening plan this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting if he's going to continue to rely only on peer pressure to enforce this. Although I guess uh, he did tweet out yesterday that, um, with the lifting of stage three restrictions and moving into stage four, he, he said that the, the stay healthy order would be lifted. Um, so I don't, I don't know if there would be any yeah. kind of enforcement mechanism there unless uh, they reverted back. Um, but you're right. I mean, they didn't meet all the criteria when you take into account uh, the number of infections among healthcare workers. Um, plus, I, I mean, we've just seen if, if you've been paying attention to the daily numbers, uh, you know, you've just seen it steadily climb again over the past few weeks um, yeah and, and so it's interesting that this decision was made i wonder how much of it was political pressure um versus versus these numbers or not um i don't know if anyone asked him about that i know that when we've tried to ask him those similar questions in the past we haven't really gotten much of a response um like when he decided that if um the numbers were still looking good then bars would be included in phase three this was during phase two and, and we asked him you know what are you basing this off of because before that uh he had been pretty staunchly opposed to opening bars uh any earlier than phase four yeah, saying that they're they're the worst among uh businesses when it comes to trying to enforce social distancing um alcohol uh, you know, loosens people's inhibitions for, for a variety of, of reasons and, and in different ways, right? Um, and so it's, it's kind of hard to kind of police that with um, bars that generally only have a few people on staff, but maybe have hundreds of people come in every night. Um, and some of that may be coming forward to bear right now. I, I got um, a, a release, really an alert from Central District Health Thursday afternoon, late Thursday, about um, an outbreak tied to, I think, 10 individuals, five confirmed cases, five probable cases, who visited, I think there were six, five or six downtown Boise bars Friday and Saturday evening of last weekend. Uh, they named the bars in the press release. I'm not going to name them here today. Um, but yeah, the, there was some concern about bars and about the ability to maintain physical distancing and commonly touched surfaces and 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 here we are we have this release this alert from central district health and 
One of the things with stage four um, means that nightclubs will be able to open this weekend. And I, I used to go, I used to go out uh, downtown a lot more than I do now. I don't know if I know the difference between a bar and a nightclub, but anyways, uh, <laughs> night, nightclubs can open this weekend. Um, and I guess we'll just see, but it's, it's been interesting. Um, and here we are, we're, we're in stage four, but the governor, I, I don't know. The governor has said if both Dr. Christine Hahn, the state epidemiologist and governor little said Thursday that they are concerned about a possible increase in COVID-19 cases. They do expect increases as they ramp up testing, trying to get to 10,000 tests a week in Idaho. Um, but the governor has said that it's possible that if there's a spike, there would be more restrictions put in place going forward. And he suggested that he would take more of a regional response going forward. So rather than a statewide shutdown, maybe he would acknowledge places where there's counties where there are not yet confirmed cases or not yet community spread, and maybe they would be treated different. So remains to see how that will play out. Um, we're just at the beginning now of stage four on Saturday. Yeah. And do, do we know whether or not um, Governor Little is going to be using the same criteria um, and same metrics that they have been using to ratchet up or ratchet open the economy, I, I guess, uh, to potentially ratchet it back down? Um, or or wh how are they going to be basing those decisions? Because uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. And I wasn't 100 percent clear on it. Thursday, I took a little bit different angle with my story Thursday. The governor, um, I, it, it wasn't something that I really drilled down on, but he said there's a, a lot of options available depending on what happens. So there's a lot of tools available for the response. I don't think we got into specifically what the metrics would be or what the individual responses uh, could be, but I think that would be a good follow-up story for a reporter here. Um, as we look at, okay, we're taking stock of where are we now and where do we go next? So I think that would be a great area to follow up on and, and look a little bit more closely about, all right, what can we expect and how can we plan? Because the governor has also said that one of his top priorities is to have schools reopen in the fall. And, and I know that's something that we focus on more than, than, than what you have, but that's going to be interesting too. So I think there's a lot of areas where our friends in journalism can follow up and, and do a lot of reporting this summer on taking stock of where we are and how we're preparing for any potential spike, you know, come fall or winter. Uh, but James, if you have just a couple of more minutes, I want to shift gears and cover one more topic uh, that we both have been covering. I know uh, last Friday, a week ago today, there were oral arguments and the Idaho Supreme Court case of superintendent of public instruction versus the legislature and the state board. As of now, Friday, June 12th, still waiting uh, on an order or a ruling from the Supreme Court, but fascinating oral arguments last week, and I know we were both uh, following along. What I guess it was interesting for me to watch the questions the justices act, asked. What did you pick up on? Yeah, uh, just quickly for, for any listeners who, who might not be familiar with the case or might not have been following closely, basically this focuses on um, Superintendent Ibarra uh, suing, like you said, the state legislature and the state board of education after the legislature basically stripped 18 full-time uh, IT workers, moving them to the state board of education. That's $2.7 million in salary and benefits. Um, you know, what's, what stood out to me was... Uh, her 
attorney, uh, former Attorney General David Leroy, uh, saying that these cr positions are critical. I mean, they do more than just simple IT or data work. Um, you know, they they also do some kind of like uh, I think grant um, grant administration and and making sure that all of those are on track too. Um, but then also depending on how the state decides to reopen in the fall, I mean, if certain districts choose to uh, administer education online, um, then they might come into play there too. Uh, and she would have, she still has a voice obviously as a State Board of Education member, um, but certainly a much more diminished one than the person running her own department. Um, I guess what what also stood out to me was that uh, the justices questioned both sides pretty heavily. You know, it, it wasn't kind of cut and dry uh, like some some lawsuits are. Uh, the other thing was that this could drag on for a while because you had Chief Justice Burdick and I believe Justice uh, Stegner uh, both question like, hey, wh why don't we just put a hold on this temporarily and kick this down to the district court level and let it kind of play out there, which means that this wouldn't be solved for potentially months, uh, maybe more than a year, and it could cost taxpayers even more money than it already is. Yeah, I thought that that was an interesting aspect of it. That was kind of the third potential outcome that I wasn't really aware of until we got into arguments last Friday. Um, but time, timeliness is a factor. The, the transition with the personnel and the funding would be scheduled to take place July 1st here just in a couple of weeks. And that's an important date in Idaho because Idaho runs on a fiscal year calendar. And so the new budget year begins every year on, on July 1. And so there is a timeliness issue, but you're absolutely right. We talked about this, Kevin and I did just a little bit last week, but there's that option that they could put a stay on the transfer, basically block it for this year, remand it to a lower court to look at some of these legal questions. But it was fascinating. They were talking about the core responsibilities of the superintendent and she's this constitutional officer she's elected but she's also a member of the state board of education and the other members of the state board of education are all appointed by whoever the governor is at that time so it's an interesting political question it's an interesting constitutional question but it's maybe not as simple or as cut and dry as perhaps i assumed it would be when i was at that budget meeting um where the personnel and the funding were taken away from the superintendent's office budget this year. It's a little bit more complicated than that, I'm starting to realize. <laughs> Just a little bit. And, and especially when you have uh, David Leroy talking about um, how, well, I guess we should say actually that one, one of his arguments related back to uh, territorial law and the territorial yeah. constitution. And so it's like, okay. And I bet uh, that, that made you happy as a Lewiston boy, right? A little <laughs> shout out to the territorial days. That's right. Territorial capital in Idaho. Um, Don't you forget it. Yeah, bef before it was, you know, stolen by uh, the, the folks <laughs> yes, from Boise. Right. Uh, I mean, rode into town, got on a ferry, and hightailed it out as soon as they busted to, into the jail and broke down a safe with the territorial documents and seal. Um, yes. So... I mean, I mean, it's it's fascinating because does territorial law and does territorial law precedent um, and even the constitution of a territory, does that carry on into statehood? Um, who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm obviously not a lawyer, 
Um, but that's that seems to be one of the arguments that they're making. Um, yeah, that that absolutely stood out to me. Yeah, it's interesting. It's but it's it's these clashes of how our executive branch and how our legislative branches come together and work together, or in some cases don't. And so it really, like, it is certainly like insider stuff and niche stuff. But if you're interested in politics and history and the role of government and legal authority, it, it's fascinating stuff uh, in all of those regards. I feel like. Yeah, and if you, uh, in a, in a different way, but in a similar. Um, vein, I guess you, you could say that it kind of relates to the the power dynamic and struggle between the state treasurer Julie Ellsworth and the legislature too, um, right? With with that lawsuit as well, where the legislature she's wants- fighting like heck for those offices for that office space, uh, yeah. but the house the house, as you know, has its eye on it because the Senate has nicer offices than the house. They do, and as far as I can tell, I don't think that even taking that office space from the treasurer and leaving her with the vault and, and another um, little carve out of an office for herself and, and a couple other workers. Um, I don't think that that would solve uh, the issue that they're trying to get out the house. That is where um, the Senate has all fully enclosed offices for each one of their members. But again, the Senate is also half the size of the house. So um, right now only committee chairman, as far as I know, and leadership have their own offices uh, in the house. Well, uh, right now we're still waiting uh, for a ruling or from an order from the Supreme Court. It'll be interesting. Be interesting to see if we get some news in short order here. Um, but James, I want to thank you for uh, taking a few minutes and, and, and coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was fun to talk politics with you, and I just wanted to offer you a minute or two here at the end and uh, give you an opportunity if you wanted to let folks know how they can follow your work going forward or if there's any uh, stories you're excited to work on this summer. Yeah, sure. Uh, and it was great to be here, Clark. Uh, I guess you can always go to our website, which is boisestatepublicradio.org. Um, you can read our stories there. You can stream us there. You can find um, the coverage map, depending on where you are in the state. We uh, kind of reach up as far north as uh, the McCall area, West Central Mountains, um, go down southwest Boise, central Idaho as well in the Stanley area, and then kind of broadcast over into Burley um, as, as well as Jackpot. So you can listen to our stations there as well or find me on Twitter at Radio Dawson. A um, couple stories going forward. Obviously, you know, what's going to happen with uh, stage four? Are we going to have to revert back uh, if, if cases spike earlier than um, maybe people thought? Uh, I, I know that the governor and uh, Dr. Christine Hahn, um, the state epidemiologist, were like, well, um, we, we might see something in the fall, uh, which would coincide with the flu season. Um, that's a story to watch, obviously. And then later this month, uh, you've got a faction of legislators and uh, potentially even Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan um, maybe trying to hold a legislative session uh, when the governor is the only person who can call yeah. a special session together. Um, so I, I don't know if that's ever actually going to come to pass or whether or not um, they're going to try to do anything and then go to a court to enforce it if they pass anything. Um, who knows? We'll see. And then obviously later this summer, we have the state GOP convention too in the Treasure Valley. Um, and as far as I know, that's still going on. So um We'll see if there are any bylaws passed there, you know, how they're going to hold that with social distancing, if at all. Um, just a couple of things that are on my radar for sure. 
Yeah, uh, a lot of stuff to look forward to this summer. Also, a big election year, uh, as everybody knows. We just got no. primary no. primary results from Idaho's unprecedented absentee-only primary. Just got those results. They're gearing up for uh, an important general election. Obviously, the presidential election uh, will be on there. We have some congressional uh, races in Idaho to decide, and every legislative race. Not every legislative race will be contested, but every legislative seat uh, will be up for election. And so there will be several contested races all throughout uh, the state this November. So it'll be interesting, and we have our work cut out for us. Um, even before we get to what's going to be a really fun 2021 legislative session, right? Yeah. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> all right. Looking forward to it. Hey, thanks so much uh, to James for joining us today on the Extra Credit Podcast. You can give James a follow if you're on Twitter at Radio Dawson. Thanks so much, James. Really appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, Clark. All right. That's all the time that we have this week. want to thank everybody once again for listening. Always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. Good news. Kevin will be back next week. We'll both be back for another all-new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. Have a great week.